If you all would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is going to come from Luke chapter 15. It's the whole chapter. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There is a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he said to himself, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he said to his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, pray that you give us Humble hearts, as we hear your word, as we've heard your word, as we 
hear your word through this sermon. Pray that you'd give us um, gracious hearts as we consider our own selves in relation to what your word promises and what your word commands. Pray that your spirit would work in us and through us. Pray that you would use me as, as a, a, in this process as I prepare the sermon that you have, um, by God's grace, that you've led me to write this morning. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. What do you celebrate? What do you celebrate? I'm not always the best at celebrating things that ought to be celebrated. Oftentimes, I move right past onto the next thing I need to do. Amanda helps me in this. When something good happens around the Waterman house, perhaps the kids go the extra mile on something or whatever it is, she encourages us to do something fun. Typically, for us, something fun involves food, right? I mean, of course, you go, hey, let's go get barbecue tonight or, or whatever it is. You know, let's go get some ice cream. Let's go buy some ice cream at the store and bring it home and, and eat it, you know, to celebrate. We celebrate. We rejoice. It, it involves being together as a family. It involves eating, enjoying one another. And you may be surprised, but this is actually a pretty consistent theme in Scripture. The people of God are instructed to have something of a party culture, if you will. Not in an indulgent way, not in a sinfully permissive way. Don't misunderstand me. But truly rejoicing. Think through, even in the Old Testament, how many of the festivals they were called to remember what God had done and to celebrate year after year, to eat, to rejoice, to dance, to sing. And that carries on into the New Testament even. Every Sunday when we gather together, what do we do to celebrate what Christ has done for us, but together eat a meal, right? What do you celebrate? For what does your family rejoice? What gets you to throw a party? Like, what is it that makes you go, we, know, we need to throw a party for that? What should cause us to rejoice and celebrate? And there could be a a dozen potential reasons to celebrate, but does the Bible tell us anything that must be on that list? That ought to bring us joy? Perhaps it's easier for us to write a list of things that cause us to grumble, right? Too often for me, it'd be easier for me to sit down and write a list of things that cause me to grumble than things that cause me to truly rejoice. We're in a section of the, of the, the gospel to, of Luke in which Luke has kind of sandwiched together all these things that Jesus has said about his kingdom, right? You remember in chapter 13, Jesus says, look, this kingdom, it, it is expansive, in its reach, and yet it's exclusive in that only through me do people come into the kingdom, right? Last week, we looked at these, those who've been invited into the, the feast, again, feasting, right? Celebrating, banquet, the banquet of the kingdom, and we found that there were certain people who, uh, certain char characteristics of people who were in that banquet that were 
that were invited and attended that banquet, and we found that there were some who were rejecting that banquet. We found that some that, that initially said, yeah, 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 but then as things of the world came in, they rejected it. They quit. Today we come into a, a passage where Jesus is telling us something of what the Father is doing in the kingdom. And what we find is that this entire section is set up in the first two verses by a very simple thing. Jesus, it says, is, uh, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him. He is apparently eating with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble about it. And that sets up three stories, three illustrations that Jesus is going to give. And it's going to give us a description of something that causes rejoicing and that ought to cause rejoicing for us. And so this morning, I want to consider first a reason for joy. And then I want to consider a response of joy. What's the reason for joy? And then what does that response of joy look like? What ought it to look like? Well, let's look at these three stories. First, the first aspect of the reason for joy is this that what was lost is found. What was lost was found. And we see this in all three of the stories, right? Out of a hundred sheep, one is lost. The shepherd goes and finds it. Out of ten coins, one is lost. The woman lights a lamp and searches the house diligently for it. These are things anyone would do. They're meant to be obvious. Of course, if you were a shepherd, you would go find that sheep. If you were the woman, then you would go and find that coin. That's what you would do. The shepherd, the woman, the father in the third story, they're all illustrations. They're all, they're all meant to signify God, the Father. What is precious to God isn't just anything or anyone. It isn't merely just a lost thing. But what's really precious to him is his possessions. His possessions, his sheep, his coin, his son. These sinners that Jesus is eating with. You, church. Write this down. Write this down. God always finds his own. God always finds his own. Every time. God never fails. And all of this ramps up into this third story, this third story where, where all the elements of these uh, the previous stories are meant to kind of come home. The third story has a twist. It's a bit more personal. It's a bit more emotional, right? We think of a son differently than we think of a sheep or a coin. We think of a son differently than we think of this animal, this dumb and wandering around, or this coin that's an inanimate object and falls and rolls wherever it happens to roll, wherever physics takes it. We think of a son different. Humans have intent. And then with this son, it's malicious intent, right? It's bad intent. The younger brother disgraces his father. He disregards his whole family. From a relational standpoint, 
Many have argued that when this son asks for his, what's coming to him, his inheritance, asks for it before the father is deceased, what he's basically doing is, dad, I wish you were dead. You're as good as dead to me. Can I just have what I'm going to get and I can go on my way? At the very least, relationally, the son is severing that relationship. I don't care about you. Practically speaking, this action by this younger brother would have been devastating for the household. Can you imagine suddenly half of this man's wealth, half of his property, half of his possessions, he must give to this younger son who then takes it away. Now, that has a trickle-down effect, right? It has a trickle-down effect into the older brother. It has a trickle-down effect to all the servants, to the household, to all of his employees. They have less capital, if you will, to work with, and thus less income coming in. It would have been devastating for the household. The son then takes that, And what does he do? He wastes it. He wastes it all on reckless living, it says. And that phrase, reckless living, I'll just tell you, everything that you imagine might be encompassed in that phrase is encompassed in that phrase. Okay, all the bad things you can think of, yes, that's what it means. And then a famine comes, it says. And the son has spent everything. And now he's destitute. He's gone from living this excessive lifestyle to starvation, envious of the pigs. He's utterly lost. And so he decides to come back to his father with a heart to be a servant. If I could just be one of my dad's servants, if I could just be like them, at least they have something to eat. But when the father sees him coming from a distance, what does it say he does? Before the son ever says anything, when the son is still far off, the father is overcome with compassion. The father is overcome with love and he runs and he embraces the son and the son begins to speak all these things that the son had planned to, to say and asking for forgiveness from his father, but, but he can hardly get the words out before the father receives him and hugs him and embraces him and says, no, we treat, we'll treat you like a son. What was lost was found. That's the first part of this reason for joy. But what, but what is this foundness? What does it say this foundness is? Well, the second aspect is this. Found people are repentant people. Found people are repentant people. What, what do I mean? Well, you might ask, well, sheep and coins don't repent, Cody. Well, that's true, but Jesus, do you see, in verse 7 and in verse 10, is connecting the finding of the sheep and the coin with the repentance of sinners. He's saying, just as the shepherd found the sheep and the woman finds the coin, so it is that when sinners repent, that's when a person is found. And the final story isn't seeking to give us a how-to on repenting so much as it is illustrating the repentant heart of the brother and the compassionate heart of the father, right? The brother realizes his sin. I have sinned against heaven and before you, he says. And he gets the order right, too. I want you to understand he gets the order right, too. Anytime we sin against someone, we sin first and foremost against God. 
then he comes back unentitled to anything, not saying that he has some claim on anything or deserves anything, but merely seeking mercy. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he says. And while he doesn't say the words, forgive me, we can see in his actions what is meant, and we can see in the Father's response what is given. He doesn't bring him back as a servant, does he? He brings him back as a son. As a son. The Father makes it clear what's happened in verse 24. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. This is important to understand that that found people are repentant people because I think sometimes sometimes, uh, some Christians can begin to celebrate merely being around sinfulness as if it's something good in and of itself. Jesus ate with sinners, they might say, and we're being like Jesus because we're around these sinful things. I do evangelism because I have, I have friends who are far off from Jesus, so obviously I'm evangelizing. But that's kind of like, uh, it's sort of like evangelist, uh, evangelism uh, sardines. Did you ever play sardines as a kid if you grew up in church? Maybe you did, youth group, I did. Uh, back in the 90s especially, if you grew up in church then. Um, sardines is sort of like reverse hide and seek. This is how sardines works. You got the lock-in going, you got all the kids in the church, you turn all the lights off, it's kind of dark in there, which is, or you already got a problem there. But anyway, and then you have, instead of having one person who seeks out, instead of having everyone hide and one person seeks them, you have one person go and hide. One person gets to go and hide. And then everyone else goes to seek them. But instead of saying, oh, I found you and bringing them out, you, when you find them, you hide with them. And so pretty soon you have one and 10, and then depending on how big your youth group was, mine was huge for a while, like you got like 60 people all trying to cuddle in this one little Sunday school room, trying to hide in there, you know, and, it, and it's good fun. I mean, it is good fun. But oftentimes we think about sardines, uh, we think about evangelism like it's a game of sardines. We just want to be in the dark with people who are in the dark. But that's not, what, that's not what's being celebrated here. Lost people are not found by celebrating lostness. This passage isn't celebrating getting more people in the dark, but seeing more sinners come into the light. That's what's bringing joy. Luke 5 already told us Jesus stated himself his purpose for dining with these sinners. It was to call them to repentance, not merely to have a good meal with them. He wasn't like, well, but you don't know, that tax collector makes a mean pulled pork sandwich. You know, it's not, that wasn't the intent. He was there for a very clear purpose. These people are lost. They need to be found. That's what makes my father rejoice. And we see that in the very beginning. It's easy for us to overlook this at the start of this passage in the very first verse. What does it say? These tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. 
They were coming near to hear what Jesus had to say, to hear the gospel. Jesus was going to take that opportunity. Regardless of what anyone thought about it. Evangelism, friends, is calling sinners to repentance, not acting like sin is okay. In a war, in a war, you don't run into enemy territory because the enemy is having a party, right? You don't run into enemy territory and go like, yeah, I'm going to celebrate with you. No, you run into enemy territory to rescue people from the enemy, to take territory back. That's why you do that. That's why you're on the front line. No one wants to be on the front line, close to the fighting, but you do it because that's what it takes. So this can produce some struggles in us, I think. A a, a few things that I want to bring on, I guess, in way of application that we need to be careful of. First, we may be tempted in this to be soft about sin, claiming that that helps us to find people when really... We may, just, we may just be wanting to keep people okay with us. When really it may not actually be about finding them, bringing them to God, but rather just keeping them from running away from us relationally. We need to be careful of that. We need to really examine our hearts. Is my intention to see this person found? Is that my highest priority as it was Christ's highest priority? Or am I just, I just wanted to keep them on my good side? A second thing that we need to be careful of here is that we may fall into sin ourselves, even if we didn't intend to do it, to, to do so in the first place. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's that, that pressure. You get around that that thing you used to struggle with, perhaps, you still struggle with, and it can suck you in, right? So we need to be careful. doesn't mean we don't pursue those who are lost, right? It doesn't mean we don't care about those who are lost, but we don't want to fall into the darkness ourselves. Third, we may worry that like Jesus, we will be misunderstood and mocked for being close enough to call someone to repentance. Friends, this is also a concern. There may be people around, other Christians around you, who look at you interacting with those who are lost and think the worst, not the best. Who don't understand that your intention in that is to call that person back to Christ. They think that just as they thought of Jesus, well, you're just, why are you eating with these sinners? So we need to be careful not to do that to others, and we need to be aware that people may, not, may do that to us and be willing to do what God has called us to do either way. So that's, that's the bad news of places that we can, be, we can fall into some mistakes around this. But the good news is this, friends. The good news is repentance is not only the starting point of faith, but it is also how we continue in the Christian life. And if you're sitting here and you're hearing those three things and you go, oh man, I've, I've done that. I've been around those who do not know God simply to keep 
good relationships because I enjoy this relationship, not because I'm concerned about their eternity or I've, I've fallen into sin in this place or, or I've, I've, been, I've judged other people without really knowing the intention of their heart or I've been concerned about how other people might view me if I'm around these people who are sinful. If you fall into one of those things, I want you to understand Repentance is not only the starting point, but it's how we continue in the Christian life. Repent and believe in God again. Trust Him. And guess what? I have no doubt that when a Christian of three years or 30 years repents of their sin, heaven rejoices again. Heaven rejoices. Because when sinners repent, heaven rejoices. That's what it says over and over again. And when you repent, church, heaven rejoices because you repented. And so the response of joy is this. The response of joy is this celebration, right? Heaven celebrates over repentant people. In both the first two stories, the reaction uh, finding, uh, the thing that was lost, is not merely the, the shepherd or the woman rejoicing, but what, are, what does the shepherd and the woman do? Calls together all of their friends, all of their neighbors, celebrate with me. What a joyous occasion. The father spares no expense when his son returns. Everyone is invited. The fattened calf is killed. There's singing, it says. There's dancing. This is all an analogy for, for all of heaven, all of the angels celebrating because a sinner has repented. Imagine, think about this. Think about the last time you were on your knees and you said, Lord, I repent. I'm so sorry. Lord, help me to believe in you. Heaven was celebrating for you. Not only does God rejoice, but he throws a party. And he invites his servants to celebrate. And that's... That's true, but it's sort of, sort of actually the sub-point. It's not the primary point of this passage. The primary point of this passage is, is what? The grumbling Pharisees. The primary point is a, is, is a contrast with those Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling the implication is that God's servants, not only in heaven, but God's servants here, God's family here, ought to celebrate. Unlike the Pharisees and scribes. Not only that, but God himself actually hands out joy to his people. He kills the fattened calf. He serves up a feast for us. When repentant people, when people repent, when sinners repent, God is serving up a feast for us, church. A feast for our hearts to rejoice, to find joy and hope in the world today. To remind us that Christ is doing a thing. That he has won the battle. 
for us as well and for all of the world to remind us that one day we'll be in heaven celebrating with all those who have ever repented, right? It's good. It's very good to see lost people found. But there's another point here where I, I think it's a, it may need stating in order that we don't get confused. Although it's good to see lost people found, that doesn't mean that it's good to get lost. Two things you notice in the text. First, it doesn't say there's no joy in heaven over the righteous staying righteous. Lest we think, well, it's not that big of a deal that I fall into sin because then I can repent and all of heaven will rejoice. Well, it doesn't mean there's no joy in heaven over the righteous staying righteous. The point of the saying is a rhetorical device to emphasize the joy of someone's situation changing from bad to good, from lost to found. It's not meant to de-emphasize the, the, the value of staying on right with God. That's not the intention. It doesn't mean, you know, God really loves a good game of hide and seek, so I better go hide again, so then he'll seek me and find me and I can repent, and then, you know, it's not what it's intended to say. I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, when he says this, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. And so it's wonderful that when we repent, heaven rejoices over that, but that's not, that isn't, that's not an excuse for us to fall into sin. That doesn't mean that falling into sin is of no consequence. In fact, what we find in the, in the final story is that it's really clear that the cost of being lost is dreadfully high, that it's incredibly risky. This son is starving to death. It's cost his family dearly, his decisions. In fact, we find in other places in Scripture that, that when we see, God tells us that when we see someone wandering off into sin, we ought to bring them back as quickly as possible. And that's, that's good. We've saved them. We've saved them from a lot of pain and strife. And yet, we're also thankful that in God's mercy, when we do get lost, we can be found. In fact, the very reason it, it brings heaven so much joy is because people are being pulled out of a life of sin, out of a life of death. Listen, listen, if you are lost right now, I want you to know that the Father has compassion. And He has mercy. And He's extending it. If you would, if you would repent, it would bring Him and all of heaven great joy would bring him the greatest joy to lavish a feast in heaven over your repentance. But I also want to say, particularly kids, I want to speak particularly to you kids right now. You have a privilege. 
You have a privilege, kids, that you're here. You have a privilege to be in the family you're in. They'd bring you here on Sunday to hear your word. You talk about God's word in your home. To be able to participate in the life of the church, seek to stay in that. Seek to stay in that. Seek to avoid, actively avoid becoming the prodigal son. Because it does cost. It costs you. It costs all around you. Instead, be the friends and neighbors who are never lost, but get the joy of celebrating whenever those who are lost are found. Be those people who celebrate, who, who get to come to the party when the lost person is found and get to celebrate and go, praise God. And thank you, God, that I never had to go through what this prodigal son went through. So what should we do? If God, first, if God must find, we must pray. If God must find, we must pray. While this chapter, surprisingly, is not foremost actually about evangelism, but rather about our hearts in regards to those who come to Christ, right? And yet it does have relevance for our own evangelistic efforts. And prayer, prayer is another big indicator of where our hearts are towards the lost. Listen, you want to know how you actually feel towards the lost? Look, examine your life. In the last week, how much have you prayed for lost people? In the last week, how much have you prayed for the lost in this city and in the world? How much have you prayed for God's kingdom to do advance? There are, I, I really think there will only be as much rejoicing when the lost is found as there is praying over those who are lost when they're lost. The number one evangelistic thing that we can do as a church is, is not actually to go out. I mean, we do have to do that at some point, right? We do, you do have to do that. But the number one evangelistic program that we can do is get on our knees and pray for people who do not know Christ because it's God who has to find them. And we do not have a reason to complain about anything if we are not on our knees praying for people who do not know Christ, how dare you look at someone else and say, they don't, they don't care about people coming to Christ if you are not on your knees. But God does use means. He said, look, pray. Pray, pray. You think, well, God's going to save whoever God's going to save. No. If he's commanded us to pray, we don't need to understand how that works, but we know that that's how God works. We pray, we share the gospel, we speak the gospel. God brings people to himself. I don't understand how, how all of that works, but I know that that's how God ordinarily brings people to faith. It's in Scripture over and over and over and over again. 
From the very beginning, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. But wait. But wait. I'll send the Spirit. And then what do they do? They pray. They get together and pray. They're praying. All throughout the book of Acts, they're always praying. And then they have the opportunity to share the gospel and God moves. Church, you are the means that God wants to use to find his lost sheep, to find his lost coins, to find his lost sons. But we have to be praying and we have to be actually calling people to repentance. Second thing is this. If God does find, we must rejoice. If God does find, we must rejoice. And this really is the point of the whole chapter, this contrast between the grumbling of some and the rejoicing in heaven. The bottom line of the whole sermon is this, nothing brings God's servants more joy than repentance. Joy for the angels in heaven, joy for the church on earth, joy when, when, when someone first repents and professes faith, joy when we repent again and turn to Christ, joy when the eight-year-old repents, and joy when the 80-year-old repents. We've got to pray first that God would give us hearts that would find joy in people repenting. And then maybe we'll begin to have mouths that are bold in sharing the gospel. So this is the question. If nothing brings God's servants more joy than repentance, why do you grumble? This is the question we've got to ask ourselves. Why do you grumble? Why does Jesus repeat the same exact story three times? We've noted the similarities. There's something lost. Something is found. It's repentance. People gather to rejoice. But is it the same story three times? There's something different in the third story, isn't there? There's a different character. There's a new piece in the third story that wasn't in the first two stories, and it's the older brother. It's the older brother that does not celebrate. It's the older brother who grumbles instead. He grumbles just like the Pharisees and the scribes in the beginning. The point that Jesus is driving at in this chapter is not the, it's not the prodigal son, it's the older son. That's the point he's driving at. That's the person the Pharisees and the scribes are supposed to identify with. That's what's supposed to convict them of their own sin. While we can learn something about the heart of a repentant person, and, and we ought to, and while we can learn something about the heart of a, the father, and we ought to, the major point is the bad heart of a grumbling brother. If nothing brings God's servants more joy than repentance, what does it mean if we're not rejoicing? What does it mean if we don't yearn for that celebration that accompanies lost people being found? What does that mean if we feel 
inconvenienced or uncomfortable or frustrated. Why or where might that grumbling come from? Let me give you a few possibilities real quick. It might come from pride. It says the older brother drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing, but he didn't go in. Instead, he called one of the servants. I'll stay in the field where I've been doing this work all day and yesterday and all this year and last year while that younger brother of mine who abandoned me has been off wasting all the money. I'll stay in the field. I won't even go into the party. I'll call a servant to come out and tell me what the heck's going on. I'm so great. Too often we think, that the way that we're serving or relating to God is better in some way. It's better in such a way that it keeps us from joy celebration for the work God is doing. We, I won't take a break to celebrate because I've got to do the Lord's work. And the Lord's going, look, I've got a party. Come on. Should we be kept from rejoicing in the church God has us in? Not because they aren't serving Christ, but because they aren't serving how we think they should be serving Christ. Not because people are sinning, but because they're exercising joy and freedom in Christ in ways that we don't like. Maybe it gives the wrong impression. It could be prideful. I know better. I am better. And it keeps us from the joy. Perhaps instead we're entitled. Entitlement can keep us grumbling. What does he say? These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Listen, it's not that the father has dealt with the older brother unjustly. The father says to the older brother, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. We think of God's love and grace and blessing oftentimes as a zero-sum game. If that person is forgiven for that sin, then, then it must take something from me. Right? And perhaps someone has sinned against us and they repent, but if God forgives them of that thing, they've hurt me. That means something is taken from me, and we think of it like a zero-sum game. It can't be that God is blessing them and rejoicing over their repentance, and also He can do something in us in that process as well. We can't point the finger at God, right? So where do we point it? You know, maybe God uses someone in the church in a unique way and someone gets honored and we think, well, I should have been honored. Instead of being excited about how what they did is actually advanced God's kingdom. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we can be entitled or sometimes related to that is jealousy. You never gave me a young goat, he says, that I might celebrate with my friends. He won't even call his brother a brother. He calls him this son of yours. Well, this son of yours, we're jealous because God used someone else in finding someone. And why God used me? 
instead of just rejoicing over the lost being found? Perhaps we look at the person that God did use and we think, well, they, they, they don't even, they got this doctrine wrong. Or they, they were messing up this. Why would God use them and not me? And we, and we begin to be jealous rather than just saying, you know what? God used someone to advance his kingdom to bring a lost person into the light of Christ and I can celebrate over that. Exposes our sinful hearts or maybe vengeance. This son of yours came who devoured your property, right? He still... You know, this, this comes from a, a right sense of justice in terms of understanding the wrongdoing of the brother, yet it misses the father's mercy completely. It misses it that it's the father's prerogative to be merciful to the son. And we can do this. Someone, as I said, someone sins against us and we're upset because people want to rejoice over that repentance. We find it difficult to rejoice over repentance, especially when someone sins against us, Right? Hebrews 12, 15 says this, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Sometimes we, we want vengeance more than we want the redeeming of people. So these three stories, they're an appeal to the older brother to change their heart. There are too many older brothers who dutifully serve in, in, in lots of different ways, but end up only hurting themselves because they refuse to come into the joy and the hope and the celebration of Christ and bringing the lost into the light. In all the ways that we're older brothers, I want you to know in all the ways that you're an older brother at times, you could add so much to this church party. I could add so much to this church party if our hearts would just not get in the way. If we would just find joy in, in, in the things that God finds joy in, if we would receive this wonderful party that he's given. This last story, it's left as a cliffhanger. The father begs the older son to join the party, but he doesn't answer. There's no answer at the end. We don't know what the older brother does. And the point is, how will these Pharisees and scribes respond? Will they stop grumbling? Or will they continue being lost themselves? And the question for us is this, how will we respond? Do we desire to experience the joy of heaven today and the salvation of hundreds, even thousands in our city? Do we believe, do we believe that the Father will do it? Do we believe that the, that the Father actually finds all that are His? That He can do it and He will do it. Do you believe that the Father can find you? Is He the one is he not the one who seeks? Is he not the father who throws parties? Is he not the son who came to earth to seek and save the lost? Is he not the shepherd who invites his friends and neighbors to celebrate with him? Is he not this God? As we'll see in the coming weeks, 
Now is the time to decide and to act. What are we willing to give to see a work of God in our time and in our city? What are we willing to give in order that God might use us to make the lost found? What are we willing to give? And will we rejoice? Will we rejoice? Let's pray.